The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's, and there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let them. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen that are with him have a complaint against anyone, The courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray. Hey, Father, um, Lord, we come before you today uh, with your word open, and we ask that you would come and speak to us, Lord, we recognize and we know that you're not a dead God, you're not a God that we fashioned with our own hands, we didn't just dream you up, because if that was true, then we would be God. So with that knowledge... In our minds, Lord, we want to come and submit ourselves before you and ask that you would speak to us, the living God, the powerful God, the one who reigns supreme over all created things. We ask, Father, that you would, in your power, in your insight, in your wisdom, Lord, that you would remove any kind of barriers in this space today that would stop us from hearing from you. 
I pray, God, that you would come and speak to places within our hearts where we have longed for things like comfort or approval, power or escape, control. Places in our hearts where we've longed for those things and found sinful ways to pursue them. I pray, Lord God, that you would come and reveal yourself, the power of your cross, and the power of that empty tomb, and the promise of heaven to us so that we might be renewed, restored, and strengthened. I trust you to do this and then some. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. When you study this passage, I think what you will find is that this passage is centered around a battle between idolatry and the gospel. I think that's the core of what we just read. It's a battle between idolatry and the gospel. Now, in the book of Acts, at this point, the gospel has surely and certainly been taking ground throughout the region and especially over the last few weeks as we've studied the church being planted in the city of Ephesus, the gospel had certainly taken ground in that city. And I think what's happening as we read the text today is that as the gospel, as God through the message of the gospel has been taking ground in the city of Ephesus, idolatry kind of rears its ugly head from within the shadows of that dark culture. The gospel had made a public spectacle last week as we studied, had made a public spectacle of many of the things that were on the surface in the city of Ephesus, right? Uh, towards the very end of our study last week, we saw that there was this mass, uh, like citywide um, public spectacle of repentance that took place as people began to burn their books of witchcraft. We even noted how it was the value of those books was nearly 50 million or 50,000. It was a lot. It was 50 something. I remember the 50 was in there. Very valuable. And we talked about how repentance should be costly. Something that I think we in the church, throughout the beginning of the church, um, have probably forgotten and lost sight of at times. Yet last week as we studied, that's exactly what was taking place. It was a very costly repentance. It was very widespread throughout the city. It was very public. When you think about it, when it comes to idolatry, it's not what's on the surface that really matters. It matters, but it doesn't really matter as much as what's under the surface. It's the things that are hidden under the surface. That's where the real battle actually takes place. Some people... Uh, would refer to this as the battleground of the heart and soul, right? This is, this is the place where idolatry truly lives and thrives. Most commentators, when um, looking through the commentaries on this specific passage, are very quick to remember that John Calvin calls the human heart a perpetual idol factory. Uh, that what this means is that the human heart actually never stops churning out new invisible idols to bow down to. The human heart, the human soul, is not like a 12-hour fueling station. Um, the human heart is more like a 24-hour shopping center. Uh, it, it never stops churning. It's open for business 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. It's an idle factory. My friend Bob Thune, um, he has a, written a number of books, one of them called Gospel Eldership, and he's quoting... Darren Patrick from his book called Church Planter, he, I think, helpfully summarizes what he calls four basic source idols that lie deep under the surface in our hearts. I want to take us through this briefly to kind of set the stage for what we'll study in the text. Hopefully this is helpful to kind of get our minds heading in the right direction, right? So he talks about these four basic source idols that lie deep under the surface in our hearts. The first one he talks about is the desire for comfort. Now, before I go into all these four, I want to say, that these desires we're going to talk about, they're not bad desires. So I don't want you to hear that wrong. It's not sinful to want these things. What is sinful and what points to the fact that they are idols is the way in which we get after satisfying those desires. You think of a desire like a hunger. I often desire a 
a really thick, juicy steak. Okay. And I dream about it. I can taste it even now as I talk about it. I love a good steak. The question is, what will I do to satisfy that hunger? So first, you have the desire for comfort. We're looking at this in terms of them actually being idols. So you think about them this way. If comfort is what I want, if it's what I deeply desire, deeply long for, then what I will do is I will basically do anything that I can to maintain my privacy, because that's comfortable. I'll do everything I can to uh, find relief from stress, or I will try to avoid stress. I will do everything that I can to find what appears to be ultimate freedom from the shackles of stress. And as I want that, and as I seek it, then I will be willing to pay whatever I need to to get it, if this is an idol for me. I will pay the ultimate price to get what I want. And, and typically, the ultimate price looks something along the lines of laziness. I, I, I reduce my productivity, I accomplish very little. And the reason that I do this is because there's a great fear deep inside of me, if comfort is my idol. This great fear that is inside of me is of any kind of stress or any highly demanding situation. Now, other people around me are going to feel a certain way. They're going to feel hurt by me if I just desire comfort to the extent that it has become an idol. They will feel hurt by me because I will be emotionally and physically and relationally unavailable to them. Because if I was relationally and emotionally and physically available to them, that's stressful, isn't it? The reality is I don't like stress. And I will spend to remove the stress to gain the comfort that I so deeply desire. So people will, be, the people will feel hurt emotionally, physically, relationally unavailable. And at the end of the day, what's going to happen is I will wind up wasting my life in the monotony of boredom. Because nothing exciting is ever going to happen when all I seek is to be comfortable. I'll be bored. Anybody want to be brave enough to say, that might be me? Hey, there's a couple. Thank you guys for your honesty. It's a tough one, isn't it? Doesn't it suck to hear that, that whole thing right there? Like, to be, like, get your mail read a little bit? As I was writing these, even, I was like, man. I was also reminded, even as you raise your hands for these, I don't want us to think that it's, <laughs> like, hey, I only struggle with the one. But the reality, if you see some sin on your surface, it's a plant, right? Have you ever pull up a plant? Is there one root? Or is there two? There's a lot of them, aren't there? And a lot of times they just spiral out in all sorts of directions. What I find in my own life is the more that I do these diagnostic things on idolatry, when I see a plant on the surface, like, oh, man, that's ugly. That's, that's a thorn. And I start to dig it up. I start to find there's multiple roots. Sometimes in a certain season of life, I will find that maybe one of these four will be the primary, the thick one, you know, and then there are those smaller, tiny ones. Second one is the desire for approval. If, if what I really want is approval, then my heart, my mind, is going to be dominated um, by dreams. I'm going to dream of affirmation and love and acceptance. I'm be really caught up in relationships. I'm not going to have any problems spending what I want, spending what I need to to get it. I'm going to typically give up every ounce of independence I have. Okay? I'm not going to be independent at all. I'm going to chase what I would call the tale of pleasing everybody around me. Because I want approval. And the thing that's going to make me lose sleep at night, the, the thing that is like my greatest fear that kind of drives all of this, is my fear of being rejected. And so what's going to happen with people around me is they're going to feel smothered by me. And, and, and the, re the reality is I become really cleany. And that's why they feel smothered. I just cling to people because I, I can't handle the thought of them possibly rejecting me. So I'm doing everything I can to get them to approve of me. The reality is I'm looking to created things, created people to give me what only the creator can give me. <clears throat> Most of the time, um, if this is me, no matter what I do, no matter how many people approve of me, 
deep down inside, I'm going to feel like a coward. I'm probably going to act like a coward. Um, I'm going to be fearful of any kind of disapproval. Right? Anybody want to say that's me? A couple of us, good. Thank you for, honestly, it's tough, isn't it? There's a third one, you know, the desire for control. Listen, if what you really want deep down inside is control, then here's what you will be obsessed with. Okay? You will be obsessed with self-discipline. Anybody want to see some of my pictures on Facebook of me in the gym? I'm just letting you know, well, this is probably one of my issues for sure. Self-discipline. Um, got to be certain of everything before you make a decision. Typically going to have very, very high, very unmanageable, very unreachable, unrealistic standards, not only for yourself, but everyone around you. And because of that, because I want control so bad, I'm going to pay the ultimate price of basically living in a very lonely existence without any spontaneity whatsoever, because it's all got to be controlled. My greatest fear in the midst of this, if this is, if this is me or if this is you, our greatest fear is uncertainty. It's, it's debilitating, right? So because I fear uncertainty so much, I will accomplish very little, because nothing can be certain. And the people around me are usually going to feel condemned by me, right? Never good enough, always disappointing me, right? And, and, and the reality is my entire existence is going to be constantly full of worry and anxiety. And here's the reason why. The longer I live, the more I'm going to become certain of one thing only, since I really want certainty. And the only thing I'll be certain of is that I actually can't control anything. Anybody want to jump on that bandwagon? <laughs> right? How many of you knew when you woke up this morning that you were going to get diagnosed from the pulpit with a whole bunch of ugly stuff? Anybody know that? <laughs> well, some of you were like, yeah, I've been coming here long enough, I get it. Last one. You got the desire for power, right? If power is what your heart longs for, then you're going to be consumed with winning, right? You want to be successful at everything. Uh, you want to be more and more and more influential. And to get that desire satisfied, you're going to spend untold amounts of energy to take on more and more responsibilities so that you have more burdens than everybody around you. That's going to prove why you're so powerful because you have so much responsibility, Reality is your greatest fear, you could say your kryptonite, the thing that you run from the most, because it scares the ever-living bejesus out of you, whatever bejesus is, I don't even know what that is. What you're going to run away from is humiliation and embarrassment. Um, you run away from humiliation and embarrassment because humiliation and embarrassment actually just proves to you over and over again how powerless you really are. So you fear being humiliated, you fear being embarrassed, so you run from that. And so people around you feel like they're just a run on a ladder, just stepped on. They're going to feel like you're just using them. You, in the midst of this whole idolatrous cycle, you are going to feel a sense of perpetual anger <coughs> that you just can't get away from. It just boils inside of you constantly. And the reason is you can never get enough power to satisfy your hunger. Sound familiar to any of you? Anybody? There's a couple of us. <laughs> talk about a sobering introduction, right? My friend Bob um, would later say that the way to deal with your inner idols is to simply name them, neuter them, and replace them. Name them, neuter them, replace them. Name the idols through hard evaluation, kind of like we just did. Uh, neuter those idols by recognizing just how they don't deliver on their promises, replace those idols by turning away from them and turning by faith to specific aspects of God's character that replaces those idols. <coughs> so it doesn't, when we talk about replacing specifically, it doesn't, it's so funny how we get this religious language, right? God is so good. And everybody says, amen. And that's true. It's not specific enough when you're doing battle against idols. You've got to drill down into specific aspects of God's character so that you might proclaim those and replace 
the idols with those specific aspects. Like, God is our true comforter, right? Uh, He has given full approval of me in Christ Jesus. Those are specific ways of replacing those idols with the character of God in Christ Jesus. He is in full control. He is the, the, like the final outcome of our lives, if we are in Christ Jesus, is certain. Because we're in Him. He alone is all-powerful. Everything and everyone will submit to God at the end when Jesus returns. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. See, those are specific ways of naming, neutering, and replacing the idols. So, that is a basic crash course in idolatry before we dive into the text, right? Let's look at the text. Let's see if what's in the text might help us think through our own struggle against the darkness that lives under the surface of our lives. First, I want us to look at the timing of idolatry, verses 21 through 23. I hear you, kiddo. The timing of idolatry. One of the basic mistakes that I think we often make in our war against the darkness of idolatry is simply focusing on external issues, right? I I said this kind of briefly at the very beginning. We have a tendency to look on the things that are on the surface. We don't do the hard work of digging up the whole root. So we'll look on things on the surface like pornography addiction or outbursts of anger, right? Or laziness or conflict avoidance, whatever it may be. And we try to do work just on the plant. Like it's it's like you're trying to take a thistle and make it look better. And the thistle never looks better. Maybe it does for a few moments because you've kind of shaved it down a little bit and it looks a little bit prettier and the flower on top of it looks great. But the reality is give it enough time because you haven't cut out the root underneath of it, the sharp points are going to come right back and be harmful, right? That's the way we often treat our issues with sin. And the reality is we probably should pay attention to the timing because the timing says something about what's going on under the surface too. Verses 21 through 23 Luke tells us that this darkness of idolatry raised its ugly head sometime after that massive public display of repentance in verses 18 and 19. Immediately following that episode of mass citywide repentance, the Apostle Paul sends off two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. These two men, I think, were very close to him, and I think they were, they were very strengthening for him. But they were missionaries that were part of his team. He sent them off while he remained in Asia for just a little bit longer. And what Luke tells us is that, is that uh, Paul is preparing to head to Rome by way of Macedonia, Achaia, and Jerusalem. Right? He's going to head to Rome through those cities. Now commentators believe um, that not only was this the precise moment when idolatry reared its ugly head, because we can see that in the text, that's easy. But commentators believe that this was the precise moment when Paul got the dream to collect an offering from the Gentile churches to send to the church in Jerusalem, which would then solidify this partnership between the home church that was full of Jews and all these outlying churches that were full of Gentiles. You you get what's going on? Paul gets that dream to have Gentiles raise funds to send back to the original home church. Uh, two churches, basically, that had, still had some schism between them because of the nationality and so on and so forth. And so Paul gets this dream while in Ephesus to get that offering to take place. What would be produced from this dream that Paul is having in these moments is a solidified relationship of gospel partnership between those two churches that were somewhat divided. The timing. You see the timing? This is exactly where Luke says in verse 23 that about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So, track with me. Immediately following a massive move of God that resulted in a citywide season of repentance, and just when Paul had laid out his plans to unite the churches through mutual giving and receiving of financial support through partnership in the gospel, This is when idolatry rears its ugly head to attack. You might find a similar pattern in your own life. Pay attention. You might find a similar pattern in your own life when idolatry rears its ugly head too. 
Oftentimes, the darkness of idolatry rears its ugly head when God is preparing to do something great in me or through me, or has just done something great in me and through me in that precise moment. Just think about Moses. Think about Moses, David, Peter, Noah. Those are four characters, real briefly. Yeah, Moses. I think Moses must have loved being in control. He was a high D or A-type autocratic leader. Had to have been, right? Leading people out of Egypt. I think he loved being in control. After leading the people out of Egypt, what does he do? He takes things into his own hands, strikes the rock for water. That's a control issue. Think about David. David, fresh off the battlefield of success, what does he do? Sitting on top of his roof, sees Bathsheba naked, rapes her, murders her husband, takes her to be his wife. Must have made him feel real powerful, right? Scumbag. Still a man after God's own heart, though. How about Peter? I think Peter must have loved to seek approval at all costs, right? We can think of various stories throughout Peter's life. One that you may not be as familiar with that you find in Galatians chapter 2 is a precise moment when the Gentile and Jewish churches are actually spending time together. And in that moment, they're trying to find some common ground. Paul tells this story in Galatians 2. And Peter stops eating with the Gentiles because of his fear of being rejected by his Jewish brothers. And Paul says, I oppose that dude to his face. Approval. Powerful. About Noah. Right? Noah built a boat. Noah's also sitting in the third row back there. <laughs> Noah built a boat. After the miracle of being saved from the flood by the boat that he built out of wood under God's direction, I always love that story because it's the story of one man's faithfulness to God with a bunch of wood saving mankind from judgment. Isn't that the story of the gospel? After that, he's looking for a little bit of comfort. I probably would have been too, man. He spent like 40 years, I think, or something like that, building this stupid boat and getting through the flood and everything. And I can't even imagine being on the boat with like a couple of kids and the wife and a whole, a whole bunch of animals. Like, get off that boat and get on the land. I think I want to take a nap too. He doesn't just take a nap, though. He gets trashed, <laughs> gets drunk, and passes out on the beach. Brings shame upon his entire family because he's looking for comfort in all the wrong places. Doesn't that sound like a country song? (laughs) So the timing of idolatry can tell us a lot about what God has been doing that we might have overlooked or wants to do that we may not have identified yet. So rather than giving in to those idolatrous tendencies in those moments, maybe when that idolatrous tendency arises within us and we go, all I want is comfort, all I want is power, all I want is approval, all I want is control, maybe if we could identify that deep desire and go, hey, God, the only place I can find satisfaction for that is in you, rather than running to the things that don't give us what they promise to give us, maybe God allows those those desires to, to, to rise up to then drive us to him like how different the stories would be if in those moments of temptation we just stopped and said, God, I need your help. Help me understand what is it I'm seeking? What am I looking for? Why am I getting after this? And how can I find full satisfaction in you that will actually last? Because here's the thing, the threat and the danger and the promises, the idolatry kind of wave in front of us that get us going those things never give us what they promise to give us. So let's look at that next. Look at the threat and the danger and the promises of idolatry. Verses 24 to 27. You look at these verses, 24 to 27, you get this man named Demetrius. Sounds Italian to me. I imagine the mob boss, that's who I think he is, is Demetrius. You know, he gets the guys together. They gather up all the local business leaders. And, uh, and they get together. They, they're, they're getting together to like discuss the effects of Christianity on their city. And Demetrius is definitely a persuasive dude, right? And he basically points out the danger, points out the threats of Christianity 
not only on the bank accounts of those business leaders, since all their wealth came from the promotion of idol worship, but Christianity also threatened or endangered the value of what I call a pornographic goddess named Artemis. Do the work on Artemis and who she was with an image of a million breasts or something like that, naked and bare, on the front of her. She was the goddess of fertility. To worship her through temple prostitution would somehow ensure that you may become more fertile. That's my short exposition, right, on, on, on this goddess. And, and Demetrius is saying, hey, yo, Christianity is a threat to that goddess. And not only to that goddess and our, and our paychecks, but Christianity is a threat to the temple of that goddess with all that worship practice of ritual prostitution. Christianity is going to take that whole thing down. It's an entire industry. So if you want to think about this in layman's terms today, think about places like Pornhub. An entire industry in danger of being taken down because of the preaching of the gospel. That would be a way of thinking about it. Or you could think Hollywood, period, and some of the entertainment that it pushes out to us. That I know I am just as guilty of partaking in watching things that definitely most likely do not honor God whatsoever. All in the name of entertainment. Because there's comfort in that. You can escape. Right? The danger and the threat here were definitely to the almighty dollar. And the promise in all of this that's insinuated by Demetrius is that if Christianity could be removed, then the bank accounts are going to overflow and the temple and the goddess are going to be safe. Agreed? Basically what he's insinuating. And the premise here is that since Paul proclaimed that anything made with hands cannot be a god, which you probably heard me say this already somehow, but like that, that, that should be an easy point for any kindergarten child to get. Okay? And this is not a hard one. If you create something, you're the creator of that thing you created. Therefore, you are the god of that thing. That thing is not, you don't create, I don't create gods, neither do you. We create inanimate objects that don't speak, they don't hear, and they certainly don't act on our behalf, right? So that, that's, that's the premise here. Um, nevertheless, the people in this meeting, man, they valued their wealth, right? They valued their ritual worship of this goddess. Christianity threatened the sinful customs and livelihood that promised great wealth and great pleasure. And when you try to subvert or take down or confront great wealth and great pleasure, you better watch out, right? Powerful things. But can you not hear also in these moments as you think about this, just the echoes of those earlier Bible stories, right? Moses with his control issues, David with his power issues, Peter with his approval issues, Noah with his comfort issues. Think about how dangerous it would be or costly it would be for these men to have resisted their impulses. For, for Moses to admit that I'm not in control, I don't know how God's going to provide water right now, but I'm not striking that rock. I'm going to do what he tells me to do, right? Or for David to not exert his power that way. How dangerous maybe could that be for him? What was the threat that he was listening to when he exerted his power in such a way that he raped a woman, killed his best friend, lost his child as a consequence? You walk through the whole thing, Peter, Noah, and you, you just think about that. And this is nothing new. Ephesus is not facing something new. Everything we face in our culture is not new. <coughs> it goes all the way back to the garden. There was this little serpent. <coughs> I think sometimes we think of that story and we go, man, I, man, if I was God, man, like, gosh, what is God doing? Like, sitting up there like, oh my gosh, the serpent's doing that. What the heck am I going to, oh no, Adam and Eve gave in. What am I going to do now? I'm going to have to go like, to the drawing board, <coughs> figure this thing out. Right? Like we see the story there, that's not it. God knew exactly what was going to happen, created the potential for it, if not orchestrated the events for a reason. What would that reason be? Why would God orchestrate those events that way? Why would God orchestrate any events in our lives that would allow idolatry to come in and kind of wake up and tempt us and entice us? 
the reality is when you, when you give in to those impulses that desires awaken within us, um, it's then, as you chase down what those idols tell you to chase, that they promise something. They promise control. They promise power. They promise approval, comfort. And if you chase it this way, they will provide exactly what you want. Or will they? That's what they promise, but will they provide that? <coughs> look at the results. If you look at 28 through 34, you see the results of practicing idolatry. <coughs> the threats and the dangers and all the underlying promises of idolatry, man, they're always filled with deceit. Satan is a liar and a father of all lies. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Our enemy. He hates the image of God inside of you. Those idols never produce what they promise. Their threats are always hollow. Listening to and obeying the promises of any kind of idolatry in your life, especially in light of the fears, the things that scare you, the things that you want, all the danger, the threat, right? If you listen to those things, what I think gets produced in us that I think we'll see in the text is simply emotional instability, confusion, and persecution. Now you might be going, how do you see that in the text? Well, let's look at it. Verses 20 34. What happens? Once Demetrius has he's set the hook of idolatry in the hearts of his listeners, right? He's got their attention. Watch out, man, your bank accounts, Christianity's going to take it out. Watch out. The whole industry's going to get taken down. He's got the hook set, right? In that moment, his listeners lose their ever-living minds, don't they? They they throw an all-out riot in the city center. And it's complete with all this chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, this stone statue. Emotional instability to think that a stone could be worshipped. And there are some in the pagan world who would think that we believe fairy tales. Right? It's nuts. And they're, they're shouting this at the top of their lungs for hours on end. One commentator made the point, and it fits our season, if you're a football fanatic like I am. <laughs> you imagine the Super Bowl comes on this next Sunday, and we're all there as a church, and for the eh, three, three and a half hours of the game, all of us just chant at the top of our lungs, Great are the Kansas City Chiefs! <laughs> Anybody like the 49ers? Oh, good, because I, I, I'd have to pray for your salvation if you did. Kidding, I'm kidding. <clears throat> These people did this for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. A little bit emotionally unhinged, if you ask me. Okay. They get so enraged. Ratty uses that word. There's an emotional word. They're enraged. And in their rage, they drag some of the local believers into the amphitheater and they proceed to accuse them of all these things and they do not allow them to defend themselves. Now, I want us to notice even a little bit deeper in terms of this, uh, this emotional instability and this confusion and persecution that's present. Uh, look how Luke describes these idolaters, right? Verse 28, they're enraged. Verse 29, what are they? They're confused. He, and then he says it again. And it's not just good enough to mention confusion once. He needs to mention it twice so he makes sure that we get it. Verse 32, they're confused. And then all throughout this portion of the text, he's describing the persecution that they attempt to bring upon these believers in Ephesus. The theater that they dragged them into is a place where Paul would later say, I fought against wild beasts in that amphitheater. Historically, it's known as a place where people would get thrown to the wolves. And so that's a scary place to be brought into. But what do you see here, right? I think you see what I said I think we see emotional instability persecution it's it's confusion those are the three things that I think you at least see in this text there's probably more right this isn't this isn't all of it but at least in this text you see this is the result 
of playing with idols. This is what happens to us. So you think of this in two ways. On the one hand, if you're standing firm on the gospel, okay, you're following Jesus, you're standing for Jesus everywhere you go, everybody knows that dude or that chick, they follow Jesus. You stand on that. You can rest assured that the spiritual warfare in this present darkness that we live in from Ephesians 6, remember we're in Ephesus, that's going to eventually rear its ugly head against you. You will experience firsthand the emotional instability, the confusion, and the persecution that results from those who are under the spell of idolatry and hate your ever-living guts because you have the Spirit of God. It's their spirit that's at war with your spirit. It's not a fight against flesh and blood, but that's what you will experience. Emotional instability, confusion, and persecution. You see, the gospel, what the gospel does is it actually upends or flips, it flips things upside down. Those core idols, control, power, comfort, approval, the gospel flips those things upside down. And when that happens, when you do that for unbelievers around you, you're going to face the wrath of their emotional instability, their confusion, and their persecution. Now, on the other hand, from a different perspective, if you and I, just like Moses or David or Peter or Noah, if we at times, and it's not really if, it's when, give in to our idolatrous tendencies. We say, man, comfort is whatever they wanted, and, and you, your impulses, you give in and you chase that in ways that are ungodly. <laughs> comfort, control, any of those. If you give in, just like those four men in the scriptures, What's going to happen is though you will not gain what those idols promise. You'll not get the comfort. You'll not get the control. You'll not get the power. You will not get the approval. It will not last. You'll wind up on the other side feeling filthy. You'll also wind up on the other side feeling like a failure, right? Because that's what sin does. You want something. You chase it in a sinful way. On the other side, you get guilt and shame. And it feels bad. And to, to satisfy that negative feeling of guilt and shame, the thing that's at the core of what you actually fear the most, you go back into that sinful cycle. You chase the sin again. Right? It's, just, it's a cycle. That's why freedom is such a huge and beautiful theme of the gospel. So you get free from that cycle. Yes, at times you turn back to it, and then you experience freedom again. And over the long course of time, your heart, your desires, your life is transformed. It's a lot of hard work. So, if we, just like Moses, David, Peter, Noah, and sometimes we, we give in, the result is always going to be emotional instability for us. <clears throat> you will have emotional instability inside of you as your heart is then hardened against the Spirit of God. You become double-minded, Right? Um, you will experience confusion as you give in to those sinful impulses and chase those desires in a sinful way. Because your mind is going to be filled with what I would call the smoky embers of sin. It, it's a confusing state that happens when you get caught in patterns of sin again. You will persecute yourself, is a way of saying it, as your flesh does what you were not designed to do. Anybody identify with any of this? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that seem like a really pitiful place to be, too? You think about it? And this is a crazy diagnosis of the sinful human condition in idolatry. And really, the only hope that you have is to silence it. You might be like, how do you do that? Glad you asked. I knew you guys were asking that. This is how you do that. Look at verses 35 through 41. Final portion of our text. Luke tells us that the equivalent of the community secretary, or you could say almost maybe like city mayor or something like that, um, the equivalent of that kind of a public official, he eventually gets the crowd to quiet down. And here's how he does it. He quiets them down by basically explaining that they had no legal grounds to charge the local believers with. Please don't miss that. There's no legal charge no legal grounds to charge those local believers. And on top of that, if they continue doing what they're doing, what's going to happen? They're going to be charged as the criminals they really are. Okay? The grand scheme of things, what God is doing is he's working silently behind the scenes to use 
what I would call a pagan public official to shut things down, to silence the idolaters, and the fine thread that is woven into all of that silencing, no legal right, criminal. No legal right, criminal, right? Got me to thinking, as I thought about that, that the way that we silence all of the threats, all of the insinuated dangers, all of the bottomless pits, all of the emotional instability, right? All of the confusion, all the persecution, the idolatry brings with it. The way to silence all of that is to silence idolatry's voice with a legal argument. And the legal argument simply says, idolatry, you have no legal hold over me. Because of the bloody cross, and because of the empty tomb, and because of the promise of Christ's return. You see, the gospel reminds us that in Christ, idolatry has no legal hold over me, and idolatry itself is the criminal that I get to oust when I proclaim the gospel over those idolatrous tendencies. I want to make sure, as we close, that you're tracking with me, right? Idolatry holds no legal power over you if you are in Christ Jesus. Idolatry is the criminal. And the way that you silence that dark voice of idolatry is to basically do what I said at the beginning that my friend Bob Thune says so well. You name it, you neuter it, and you replace it with the gospel. So when you do this, what you do is you effectively remind yourself that that idol has no legal hold over you. So think about the idol of control. The idol of control has no legal hold over you, although you probably want it really bad sometimes, right? So bad you can taste it like a good steak, especially when things are out of control. That's when I want control the most. No matter how bad you want it, it has no legal control or hold over you. And so you have to name it. Hey, that's control. That's what's tempting me, really. And you got to neuter it. And you got to replace it. And the way that you neuter and replace it is to remind yourself that Jesus is the one who is in ultimate control over all things. So even when things are pure, absolute chaos, you can rest. You can rest in Christ knowing that he's in full control. And the best proof of him being in full control is a bloody cross. <coughs> it is the empty tomb, and it is the promise of eternity. Think about comfort. When you begin to desire comfort so deeply that you are tempted to chase that with sinful impulses, you want it really badly. All you got to do is name it for what it is. All you got to do is neuter it and replace it. And the way that you do it, again... Remember, the only lasting comfort you're going to find is in seeking the presence of Jesus. It's chasing him and seeking him in the same way that he chased you and sought you. Chased you and he sought you even though you were a filthy criminal in your sin. And if you belong to him, he saved you by his grace. And that is meant to motivate you to chase him in relationship and find your comfort in him. If the idol of approval is the thing that you're really struggling with, and you're just like, man, I just wish people would like me. You gotta remember, it has no legal hold over you if you are in Christ Jesus, even though you really want it. You really want people to tell you just how cool of a good of a person they think you are. And approval will never satisfy you eternally. Like I'm always really thankful when people say, Hey Joe, nice sermon, thank you. I'm always thankful. I've learned a few things over the years. <laughs> the same person who can say, great sermon this week, can say, I hate your guts, I'm out of here next week. So I've learned not to, I, thank you, I appreciate it, but I will not live on it, right? That kind of approval will never satisfy you eternally. You've got to name it for what it is. It's, it's false approval, at least from an eternal standpoint. You neuter it by showing it how unable it is to deliver on its promises. Then you replace it by preaching to your heart, the bloody cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of eternity. That will certainly deliver, with all certainty, the most absolute acceptance and approval. According to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The word now is really important because it's right now, always right now, no condemnation. really good to know we have a father who ransoms and redeems and welcomes sinners just like you and me into his arms for all of eternity and then transforms us into saints in the process lastly the idol of power right has no legal hold over you the desire for power has no legal hold over you you don't have to give into those sinful impulses and chase it power is very tempting winning is awesome can't wait to see the chiefs kick the snot out of the 49ers, right? But Winnie's awesome. (laughs) Never going to satisfy you, though. You know why? Because all the power you can get on this earth is going to get burned up in the end. It's going to go away. You're going to go to the grave one day, and all the power and all the things you had ain't going to matter anymore. And you can't take it with you. Never going to satisfy you. It's going to get burned up. So you've got to name it as the liar it is. Hey, power... You are an absolute stinking liar. I don't need you. You can say that. You can neuter it as the incompetent thing that it really is. You can replace it, again, crucified, risen, returning Savior. He will rule with ultimate authority when he returns. He's going to come back on a white horse, clothes drenched in the blood of the saints sword coming out of his mouth lightning bolts coming out of his eyes that's my king that's coming back i don't need power i don't need control i don't need comfort i don't need the approval that comes from anything on this earth because that's the king that's coming back for me and for you if you're in him name it neuter it and replace it with a bloody cross empty tomb promise of heaven amen let me pray father thank you pray lord god that you would Take this word and apply it to our hearts in these closing moments. Lead us to that place where we do see freshly the power of the cross, the power of the empty tomb, the power of eternity. Help us just do work in these moments, God. I pray that your spirit would come and do a work of healing. And not just healing, but also releasing from the shackles and from the prison cells the places of our hearts and our lives where we have been imprisoned, us free. And also, Father, strengthen us as the blood-bought saints that we really are. Trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name.